The Bible says that on this particular Sunday, long ago, a vast crowd gathered in the streets of Jerusalem to greet the arrival of Jesus, who many believed was the long-prophesied Messiah. The scriptures read as follows. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And then, just a few short days later, when the Roman governor Pilate has taken Jesus into his custody, Pilate asks the very same crowd this question. What shall I do then with the one you have called, you have all hailed as the king of the Jews, as the answer to your hopes, as the long-promised Messiah? What shall I do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted, crucify him. Why? asks Pilate. What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, crucify him. And thus, history records, they did. What do you make of all this? What do you make of the radical swing between the attitude of the crowd on this Palm Sunday and the orientation of that same group of people just a few days later. Maundy Thursday, Good Friday. How do you account for this radical change of public opinion? As I have studied the facts of this particular case, the only thing I can conclude was that that crowd had a particular set of expectations that Jesus failed to meet. They had a set of hopes and expectations for which he failed to provide the desired outcome. They longed for him to be the great political Messiah that would free Israel from the bondage they were experiencing under the rule of Rome. And when they discovered that his intention was to free them from a bondage of a much more pervasive and enduring kind, they became divinely disappointed in him. They turned from worshiping him to calling for his extermination. It is my conviction that there are times when we stand in the sandals of that crowd. There are times when we, too, bring expectations to the relationship we have with God and experience outcomes that 
deeply disappoint us. I know that's true for me. So much so, frankly, that there are times when I find it, frankly, hard to forgive God. Now, I don't mean that literally. I am not so presumptuous as to believe that I could ever shake my fist at God and say, you come here right now and apologize to me for what you've done. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't attempt that. I'm very clear that God has the job of God. He's not just applying for the job. I have the job of human being, and it is fundamentally my responsibility to try and understand, but most of all, to try and adapt myself to who God is and what God is doing, even during those very difficult moments when I don't entirely get it. So I'm not asking for forgiveness in that literal sense, but I have to tell you that there are times when I grow so profoundly disappointed at the gap between my expectations and what God allows or or actually does, that I find my relationship with him interrupted. I find myself embittered. I frankly find myself wanting to turn away from God. I don't want to show up at church. I don't want to read this book. I don't want to follow his instructions because I am so divinely disappointed. And while I would never actually call for his crucifixion, there are times when I do say, at least quietly inside of myself, maybe not out loud, to heck with you. To heck with you. Do you ever say that yourself? Can you resonate with anything of what I've said here this morning? Are you ever disappointed with God? It seems to me that If that is the case, if you struggle sometimes with this relationship because of these frustrated expectations, then there are some creative steps that can be taken to help restore that relationship, to renew this most vital and important and and life-giving of all relationships. And I want to think about those steps with you this morning, the first of which is this one. Identify your truly God-worthy disappointments. And the reason I include that phrase, God-worthy, is because it has been my experience, at least as I've dealt with myself, that there are certain things that arouse my irritation and anger and disappointment that actually probably do not belong in the needs forgiveness with God category. And unfrosted cake is one of those things. Do you remember being a kid going to the birthday party? And the time came for the cake to be cut. And Johnny or Susie got that piece with the great big gob of blue icing on it that you wanted. You remember that? Remember what you felt like? But, 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 uh, some of us never get over that. We go through our whole lives noticing the blue icing that other people are getting in this life. You know, that person got a musical talent or athletic talent or, or, or something else I didn't get. They got, they got movie star good looks. They got born into a wealthy family. They got this talent or that advantage and I didn't get it. God, I'm really ticked off about this. You know what I mean? I don't want to go through my life that way. 
I lived for many, many years in communities on the East Coast and then on the West Coast that were filled with people who had a statistically unusual amount of blue icing. Okay? Literally, movie stars, athletes, bazillionaires. Let me tell you something. They could always fixate on the part of the cake that wasn't slathered enough. This is a human condition. I want to be at a place in my relationship with God and myself that most of the time what I'm thinking is how did I even get invited to the party? I mean, wow, what a grace is this? And even if I only have what looks in comparison to other people like a tiny slice of cake, it is way better than hundreds of millions of people who don't even have a crust of bread. So unfrosted cake isn't one of the things God needs to apologize to me for. Wear, routine wear and tear is another thing that doesn't belong in the needs forgiveness category. Every single day, people go to stores and hand back over something that they bought and are now dissatisfied with. It got cracked. It got frayed. It got worn out. It got broken. It got messed up in some way. And the response of the clerk behind the counter to most of those inquiries, not all of them, but to a whole lot of them, is this. The manufacturer is not responsible for what? Routine wear and tear. That's right. And that is also true in the larger sense. I wish my body didn't break down. It is showing a lot of signs of wear and tear these days. That's why I'm glad for the robe. It covers up a multitude. <laughs> and, and there's a lot about life that just, just gets cracked. It just gets smudged. It just gets torn up in some way over the long course of the journey. And, and God never said it would not be like this. In fact, Jesus said, in this world, you will suffer. I count on this. It's just part of life. It's... There's the knocks and the bangs and the wear and tear of life. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to you. As Scott Peck put it, life is difficult. Once you get that figured out, you're way ahead. You don't have false expectations. I don't need to forgive God for routine wear and tear. And finally, I don't need to forgive God for self-inflicted wounds. If I go through my life ingesting terrible stuff... Uh, and then I turn out I have health problems as a result of that. I don't get to shake my fist at God about that. If I, if I kind of go through my journey losing jobs over and over again and messing up relationships and because I've got all of these blind spots that I'm never really willing to look at, I don't get to blame God. If I find myself over the course of my life um, not investing in learning, in building skills, in loving, uh, I shouldn't be clenched fists towards him if my life doesn't turn out like I'd like it to, like I expected it to. I should much rather open my hand and reach out for him and say, God, help me. Help me find the more creative way. But not every life situation is in one of those categories, is it? I mean, there are these times 
and you've been there, I'm sure. When the things that happen are just so awful, are so wrong, seem so easily preventable, if God is on his watch, that it, it, it sends up this profound disappointment in us that makes us question everything we believed or hope about the existence or the nature of God himself. I think back to a time when I was younger and uh, I had this uncle I really looked up to, a, a handsome, articulate, gracious, talented d- guy. He was the president of Gates Learjet. He had a four beautiful daughters. He adopted a brand new baby boy and he's coming home to the party the family party where they're gonna celebrate the arrival of this baby boy and he, he he's traveling home he's at a traffic light the light turns green he pulls out into the intersection and blammo a car comes speeding through the intersection full of bank robbers running from the police and obliterates his car And the bank robbers get out of their car when the dust settles and they walk away with cuts and bruises and my uncle's been decapitated. And his children and my aunt and our family are ravaged. Beyond repair. At least fully in this life. I just don't get God. Sometimes. It just seems like it would have been such a little thing to cause the shoelace of one of the bank robbers to come undone earlier that day and just slow them up for a little while. It would have been so easy for the God who created this universe just to nudge an electron or two along a little faster in their path and change the light at a slightly different time. There's just something that keeps me from fully understanding why and how these painful things happen. I don't know if... Do any of you understand those feelings? Do any of you... Raise your hand if you've ever raised the question. And then wake up your neighbor if they haven't raised their hand, because I know they have. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. It's it's an age-old question. I mean, it's all through the Bible. I mean, if this book wasn't about this, I I wouldn't be reading it. It, it, It's raising the question, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? How is it that that a guy who lives on a scotch and tobacco diet lives to 90, (laughs) while a 35-year-old health nut you know, dies of ovarian cancer at 35. You know, how does this happen? How is it that some, some, some kid has her fourth abortion and some couple that is just dying to have one child to love and send out into the world can't seem to sustain a pregnancy? Some of us hate God. For running the universe this way. Some of us may never put that word to it. But even for the devout. Even for the Elijahs. And many of the other key figures. There's this moment when we just rage. Against God. For running. Mismanaging it seems. 
the universe in this kind of way. As Lou Smeads puts it, that hate isn't all bad. In fact, it's on the path of forgiveness. Smeads says that forgiveness involves three stages. First, we hurt. Then we hate over the wrong and the wound. And then if we keep leaning into it, we may eventually heal. And feeling this passion towards him, this how long, O Lord, that this why God is such an important part of the process as the Bible describes it for us. One of the ways that we heal ourselves is to identify truly what are God-worthy disappointments. And then, secondly, I think it is to dare to believe as hard as it is in the possibility that there is a bigger picture. You have heard all of the analogies, I'm sure. You know, the analogy that the the tangled uh, strings of tragedy that you're encountering now, the awful, chaotic, random, wacky pattern, the ugly reality you're seeing right now will one day be seen from the other side as a flawless tapestry of such magnificent beauty that when you stand before it, you will fall down on your knees in abject awe and say, God, I understand how beautiful is your providence. Or maybe you've heard the analogy of God as the ultimate physician, the great physician who knows the disease of this world and of our individual lives and with absolute brilliant precision cuts and, and, and interacts with the body of this creation in such a way that it brings about its healing. And as C.S. Lewis has said so beautifully, even though the cut of this knife hurts, we must remember it is to make us perfect. It is to heal us and not to harm us. Or as the Apostle Paul himself put it, In this famous passage from Romans 8, for we know, as in we truly believe, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. For nothing, he writes later on, that is, meaning no tragedy, no loss, nothing that makes no sense to you right now will be able to separate us finally from the love of God that is in ours, that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the Bible's affirmation. This is the Bible's consistent affirmation. In the midst of the chaos and the pain, believe there is a larger picture. In my darkest moments, with trembling faith, I just reach out for that belief. But I have to tell you, it's not enough. It's not enough for me. I mean, it, it's, it helps. It's just not sufficient. And I do not go with my beautiful analogies to the children of my uncle and try and explain it simply to them. I do not stand before the parents of a kid who's 
been diagnosed with a terminal illness at age eight and throw out my beautiful little sermon illustrations to them. It's just not enough. Though maybe over the long haul, it helps some. And even though over the long haul, it's true. And so for this reason, there is a third step that it's sometimes helpful to take when we're just so mad at God. And this is it. This is it. I try to imagine a better arrangement. I try to imagine the arrangement that I would put in place if I were God, if I were given the management role, which I so wisely deserve, I think, at times. I could do, I think, a better job. I want a world, for example, that has consistency to it. Actually, I'll be honest with you, it's one of the reasons why I kind of like that God set up these predictable physical laws. Gravity works day by day. The sun comes up. I mean, I, I don't have to take the guesswork out of it, right? Right? Do I have to wear lead boots today because gravity might be suspended? No. I, 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 I like having a physical body. I mean, I love the feeling of the warm sun on my skin. I'm, gonna, I, I'm hoping in July I'll finally feel it again. <laughs> I like even the vulnerability of this body. To feel the trace of my wife's fingertips on my skin. Wouldn't want to lose that. Wouldn't want to lose that. But there is a cost to this consistency and this vulnerability. It means that if I'm in a car, when another car comes through the intersection at the same time, then I could die or be terribly injured and my family could suffer like my uncles did. Would I want a world that was all wispy and everything just interpenetrating and never real and substantive and colorful and tasty and all that the glory of life is? My answer is, I don't think I'd want to design that kind of world. And I thought sometimes to myself, would I, would I prefer a world in which people were never free to rob a bank or drive through an intersection. I mean, would it be a better world if we were all just sort of morally programmed to always do exactly the right thing without any choice? I think about it sometimes. If you were all programmed so that you just had to, to come out of the service every Sunday and say, great sermon again today. <laughs> wow. You just get better. If, if you were programmed to do that, would I actually like that? And the answer is, you know, after about seven or eight years, I get tired of it. <laughs> and my preaching would definitely not improve. No, I want real relationships. And the power of choice is so crucial to that. To real love. To the beauty of real sacrifice. To the beauty of creativity I would not want a world that did not have physical substantiality consistency and vulnerability and was absent of moral choice free will 
this world that God has given me and you seems on balance a fairly good arrangement. And some 50 plus years into the journey now, I'm coming to see that I cannot actually have all blessings simultaneously. I cannot, I cannot have the joy of adventure without risk. I, I, I cannot experience the, the, the power of love without suffering loss. I cannot be in a position in my life where I, I, am, I am without, uh, where I can have genuine creativity without failure. And even though it is hard to live in this world, even though to live in a world where hope requires the reality of disappointment, I believe these things are inextricably bound together in what is overall a very good and glorious world. And so it hurts. It hurts sometimes to live here. It hurts sometimes to die from here. But some of us, alongside of that reality, find humility and possibility of forgiveness, of forgiving God, and reaching out with trembling hand to take hold of amazing grace meeting us each day. My friends, if you struggle to forgive God, make sure you first identify whether the disappointment you're going through is God-worthy. Dare to believe in the possibility there is a bigger picture than you can see. Try to imagine a better world and an arrangement if you can. But there's one final step you might consider taking that is powerfully described by Eli Wiesel. And I want to share this with you as we prepare to go on our way. Wiesel, as some of you will know, is one of the most famous survivors of the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. And in his magnificent book, Night, Wiesel describes a particular day in that death camp when he was reasonably young. He was being, he and the other prisoners there were forced to watch the execution, a bizarre form of justice, so to speak, of three prisoners, two of them adults, one of them a little child. And this is how Wiesel describes the moment. The three victims were mounted together onto chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. At a sign, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence settled across the camp. Then the march past began. The guards forced them to walk past the three individuals hanging there and look into their faces. The Two adults were no longer alive, writes Wiesel, but the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. 
And for more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him. We were forced to look at him full in the face. And behind me, I heard a man asking, where is God now? Where's God now? And I heard a voice. I heard a voice within me answering him. Where is he indeed? Here he is. Here he is, the voice said, hanging on this gallows. There there is a mystery to what God allows. A mystery akin to the puzzle of why we do the things we do to one another. But for those who can remember, who can recall the hot tears of Jesus when his friend Lazarus died, even though he would raise him momentarily, for those who remember how he wept, had even that momentary loss. For those who can recall how Jesus cried over Jerusalem at the lostness and the barbarism of his people. For those who can remember in some way how the father of every human being grieves over every pain, every misguided step and injury of his children. For those who can remember the sight, even in their imaginations, of three gallows, three crosses, hung against an apparently senseless sky outside Jerusalem. It is no longer so much of a mystery as to where God really is when we hurt. You know where he is. He's there in the midst of it. He's suffering with you. He's feeling the pain. His heart is breaking. His blood is shedding. And as Lou Smeads wisely observes, it is always just a bit easier to forgive someone who has suffered much. Or someone who you know suffers with you. If you want to move beyond hurting, if you want to move beyond hating God, if you want to move beyond where you may be today and into a season of healing, then here's the fourth step. Remember where God is. Because no matter what it feels like to you, he has been there. He is with you there. He was with you there. He will be with you there. And you are never alone. Let me conclude by paraphrasing my mentor Smeed's. There is a difference between forgiving God 
and forgiving an enemy. When you forgive your enemies, they may stay your enemies even after you forgive them. When you forgive God, however, it is very different. You may just live in the silence for a while. You may just have to grope toward the goodness of life for a season. But this you can absolutely believe where that Palm Sunday crowd somehow could not. As Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday are going to proclaim to you decisively, colorfully, loudly, personally, all over again this week, even though you may be profoundly disappointed by him at times, your God is not your enemy. He is your friend. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, come close to us, we pray. Meet us in our hurt or in our hate. And heal us. Restoring to us or establishing for the very first time that great relationship with you that is life abundant and eternal. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.